1: Thanks for listening to the Jazz Jewel Show podcast. Today on the pod, Prime Minister Trudeau gets lectured by Israeli leader Benjamin Netanyahu after urging maximum restraint to protect civilians. We'll have the latest. And get out your compass card. Vancouver City Hall eliminates parking minimums for new developments in the West End and the Broadway area. We'll look at the repercussions for commuters. And while opposition to Airbnb continues, we speak to one man who says BC needs to preserve short-term rentals, not hinder their growth. That's all next on the Jazz Hall Show podcast. But first, let's talk atmospheric river. It was two years ago today, British Columbians were assessing the catastrophic damage left by the atmosf- uh, atmospheric river event that brought record-breaking rain uh, to the southwest corner, of course, of BC. Now, 24 months removed from that storm, uh, there, which it just has resulted in major highways being destroyed and, of course, shuttered for weeks. Permanent repairs to the most damaged highways are finally complete. Today, the Minister of Transportation, Rob Fleming, announced that the Coquihalla has been rebuilt and is more resilient to climate-related disasters. Take a listen.
2: Two years ago, the weekend of November 14th to 15th, 2021, our province was rocked by an unprecedented devastation of the atmospheric river. More than 30 sites on the Coquihalla Highway were impacted, including six bridges that collapsed or were heavily damaged. Today, I'm immensely proud to share that all six bridges that were destroyed during the Atmospheric River in 2021 have been fully, permanently rebuilt, and all lanes in both directions are completely open to traffic. The new climate-resilient rebuild of the Coquihalla is now officially completed.
1: That was Rob Fleming, the Minister of Transportation. Of course, those repairs and uh, would not have been done without the road builders of British Columbia. Joining me now is Kelly Scott, who is the President of the BC Road Builders and Heavy Construction Association. Kelly, thank you for joining us.
3: My pleasure, Jazz.
1: So walk me through what it's been like for the last couple of years for your members. I've driven up to uh, Kelowna two or three times in that time, and and, uh, there were, of course, stops along the way because of the construction. Walk me through what it's been like for your members over the last couple of years.
3: Well, I guess uh, talking about the nice weather today, certainly (laughs) we go back two years, uh, all hell broke loose. And uh, uh, the devastation that we woke up to uh, two years ago, uh, we'd never seen before. Uh, we, we've handled slides before, but nothing of that magnitude and that many of them. Uh, and we woke up to communities that were isolated. Uh, there was no way of getting to them. I remember seeing photos of the Highway Number One going out uh, out the valley there and people on boats driving up and down that. Uh, the isolation of communities, the isolation of the, the city of Vancouver. Uh, the port was shut down. Mm-hmm. Railroad was shut down. The pipeline that you and I own was shut down uh and it, and all the roads were shut down and this this country uh really economically the impact was quite significant uh, so our members woke up to to this and and really the, the I guess understanding that uh this is a, a once in a thousand year event, and what are we going to do about it?
1: Mm-hmm. And, and the province estimates that the total cost of reconstruction around the Coachella Highway One and Highway Eight is about a $1 billion dollars—one billion dollars—and uh, most of the damage was about thirty sites, one hundred thirty kilometers worth of damage, including the six bridges that the uh, uh, the minister was was talking about. Uh, what does your like, in regards to just building and rebuilding? Uh, when the minister talks about climate resiliency what kind of things does that actually mean on the ground for your members people who are building uh, these roads and bridges what, what does that actually mean
3: well it's, it's been an interesting process and government has been talking to us about about environmental uh, issues showing up climate change needs to be in the engineering and and they've gone out and looked around the world at other jurisdictions and and come back with different ideas of how we can build back better and and certainly we're seeing that now uh, we're reminded of the time they built the uh, Sea of the Sky Highway for the uh, Olympics. Uh, I remember as a kid that highway was always washed out some at some point during uh, the winter. We don't see that now. And the government of the day and the Ministry of Transportation, they recognized the need to to build climate resilient roads and, and, and they can do that. It's either we're re-armoring the, the creek beds, river beds, mm-hmm. uh, repositioning how we come onto the bridges as, as compared to what we did when We originally built the Coke uh, 30 odd years ago.
1: Uh, I'm curious, uh, part of the conversation here, of course, in British Columbia and even Ontario was just the lack of labor and the challenge of finding people. Uh, Did your industry have to go through the same in regards to the repairs uh, and overall, how difficult was it to find labor? Uh, Because you need a lot of folks pretty quick.
3: Yeah, yeah, good question. And I must say it's a proud moment in Road Builders' history that uh, when the 911 call came out from Ministry of Transportation on November 16th, uh, everybody dropped down their tools, and just the resounding answer to ministry was, uh, what equipment do you need? What people do you need? When do you need it? It wasn't a matter of, of anything else, and and it was all available. In fact, uh, we had a surplus of equipment and operators available to come and work on this project. So it, it was a nice testament to, to road building, the road building industry, but also a testament to a very, very strong working partnership with Ministry of Transportation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they came together, and as it, did, it worked out, uh, they put together the Coquihalla, something that we thought probably be another year before we did, were able to open it. And, you know, as it turned out, within 35 days, uh, the reopening of the coke to at least get traffic moving to get our economy back off its knees. But probably the, the nice fact, and what we're really proud of, there was a zero lost time accidents during that 35-day period of just repositioning and, and, and getting a Coquihalla reopened to jazz And also to your labor question is we're a fairly unique industry in the horizontal construction side. We, we have people available. Um, and as we go forward, we continue to see more people becoming available as we see the Site C. We see the kicking horse projects, the pipelines all coming to an end. Uh, well-trained kids, uh, young adults who can work in our industry are available and they're available now.
1: Uh, So there's not a worry about lack of labor or concern for uh, lack of labor in the years ahead? Because that's just generally what I hear from not just your industry, but other industries, specifically construction uh, and home building and all of that. But you don't think you're going to have that challenge?
3: Our, Our challenge is we have the workers. Uh, and we've trained these workers. We've put them through Site C training courses, how to run equipment, run rock trucks and that. So so the, our challenge is to keep them in British Columbia not have them go back east where there's other work available. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when we invest in this, this youth, we need to have more work for them. And as you well know, these projects have a finite life. They, we build them, and two, three years later, it's over. So the contractors are then looking where else do we go and, and bring our workforce with us, yeah. well-trained, safety-conscious kids that have grown up in the industry and know how to operate in British Columbia.
1: Well, Kelly, uh, thank you so much for your time and great work. Six bridges and a lot of roadways, 130 kilometers that were uh, impacted there, and it's great to see uh, that uh, all of this did get built, and hopefully it'll be stronger and more resilient uh, in the years ahead as well. Thank you so much, Kelly.
3: You bet, Jess. Thank you.
1: Welcome back to the show. Well, for the first time, Disney on Ice is bringing Walt Disney's animation studios Encanto and Frozen to life uh, in the rink. Uh, The popular award-winning stories, Frozen is the number one animated feature of all time. And of course, Encanto won the 2022 Oscar, Golden Globe and BAFTA for best animated feature are being presented as part of Disney's on Ice's winter tour as it touches down in Vancouver next week. Uh, The principal skater for Disney on Ice is Florian Valera, and he joins us now. Florian, thank you for joining us us today thank you for having me hi uh lots to talk about here uh walk me through a little bit Uh, how did you start with disney on ice
4: oh yes well that's that's a great question to start i um i've been a figure skater my whole life and um uh i i kind of wanted to put all of these uh these hours of skating that i was that i was doing um to good use and so um i decided to uh after i i stopped competing i decided to uh Start audition to be a professional figure skater, and uh, and uh, I got I got hired by uh, some really some really great figure skating companies until until Disney came, uh, and uh, I'm here now.
1: Ah, and where did you start uh, skating? Um, uh, in regards to your career, when and where did you start skating?
4: Um, I started uh, so right at home in the, in the south of France. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've been skating my entire life there, competed in France, um, nationals in France, and then uh, went around the world with uh, with uh, Disney on Ice.
1: Wow. Now, you're playing the role of Christophe uh, for Disney on Ice, uh, which presents Frozen in, right. and Encanto. Um, walk me through, what is it like for a, for a performance for you? Uh, what's it like behind the scenes and even on the ice? Walk me through what an evening is like when you're, when you're, when you're going to Disney on ice.
4: Maybe kind of a normal day in the life. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, we, um,
0: this episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com/system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com/system. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible.
1: Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line it's possible complex specialty care that cares about your roi it's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions that's wonder made possible learn more at evernorth.com wonder
4: we usually get to uh get to the arena uh around the morning time or noon it depends on what kind of rehearsals we have planned this day but um, we do a lot of rehearsals and a lot of cleaning choreographies for uh, for our audiences and uh, I do have my my um, practice size to practice my, my solos and my tricks and uh, my performance in general and that goes through the entire afternoon and then around uh, 5 o'clock that's done and then we get to uh, get ready for the show that's Around seven at night, usually. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's the normal day in uh, um, in the life when we have uh, when we have one show per day. But some some weekends gets to like three shows per day, two to three shows per day. So uh, it depends on on the day, really.
1: Uh, and what's a, are there any similarities to skating uh, in a competitive form, like you did uh, in France, and uh, entertaining families and children?
4: Yeah, it's it's. Like like I said, it's very it, it's a very different um, environment when you're when you're competing and when, you, when you're performing for for an, an an audience that that came to see you. <laughs> and uh, just competitions was never really for me. Um, I, I, w- I preferred really more being in a being in the part of a of a group and in a, and a production and, and and I always preferred the the, the galas and, and the performance over, over competing. It was just my, my type of thing.
1: Mm -hmm. And what's it like? I mean, it it must be such a thrill that you're out skating and in in the midst of this performance and, and, uh, and you see the kids' faces. What is that like? Because I can imagine people probably go to these events, kids certainly dressed up and with their favorite Disney character. It must be quite the thrill just as a performer to see these young kids so Engulfed in the character and in the por- in the performance.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's super fun. It's super fun to go to go out there and and um, you know we're we're in our in our zone to 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 um, to provide a great performance. And we get out there and we see those 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 kids that are dressed up as as you. That happens sometimes. That I see kids dressed up as as Kristoff. So I get I get to perform for them. It's it's really fun. But um, what really blows my mind the most is when we have parents dressed up as well as their kids and the entire families are dressed up as a family of character of Disney characters and that's that's really fun for us because we get to play around with those people um but yeah but it's it's my favorite part of the of the job really is the audience interaction and 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 what you can do with it because it makes every single show different
1: uh, and and you don't have to say Vancouver, but do you have any favorite cities you'd like to travel to? I'm just curious because you do so <laughs> tours are so expansive, and you travel around North America and other parts of the world. But, and like I said in advance, you don't have to say Vancouver, but do you have any favorites you'd like to visit?
4: I do. I do like touring in Canada. I'm going to say that, um, but um, I think my my number one top place that that I've had the chance to to perform in was um, Japan and and Australia.
1: And what was it about those two countries you really enjoyed?
4: Um I think it's about, you know, the the different cultures of of the country in general and the different the different culture in the anchored in the people and then it's just very uh it's just very different from from the rest of the world. There is there is just a different um there's a different vibe in the country and people are like really crazy, incredibly crazy about about Disney. And it's very different, like um, um, people in, in some parts of the world, they're, they're used to seeing Disney movies and they're used to going to Disney World. So it's, it's a very different audience reaction that we get when we stay in America or when we actually go to Japan, for example, where they, they are actually crazy about Disney in general. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, Florian, uh, I think there's going to be a lot of fans uh, waiting to meet you, and uh, the performance for Disney on Ice Present uh, presenting Frozen and Encanto uh, is on November 22nd, is the first performance, and it goes all the way to the 26th, and their ticket's still available. Thank you so much for your time today, Florian, really appreciate it.
4: Thank you so much for having me. Come
1: see the show. Welcome back to the show. Well, it wasn't a great visit to the West Coast for uh, for current Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. I mean, it started well, after all. He did come and announce a $1 billion lithium-ion battery plant for Maple Ridge, but it all went downhill after that. Last night, the Prime Minister went for dinner at Vidges on Kambi Street. Unfortunately for him, 250 protesters arrived, 100 police officers had to be deployed, and two people were arrested after protesters called for a ceasefire in the Israel-Hamas war. Now, after Trudeau and his security team drove off, police officers attempted to disperse the crowd. A 27-year-old man was arrested for allegedly punching a female police officer and attempting to gouge her eyes. Take a listen to the crowd as Trudeau uh, d- decided to leave. Shame
5: on you! You have. Playing-
4: Do you the genocide, Justin Trudeau. Look at us! Look at us! How many children have died? Look at
1: us, That went on for a while. Well, earlier in the day, Prime Minister Trudeau spoke in Maple Ridge, where he urged Israel to protect civilian life in the brutal war it was waging on Hamas and the Gaza Strip. He said the world is witnessing the killing of women, children and babies, and that it must stop. Take a listen to his comments. The human tragedy that is unfolding in
2: Gaza is heart-wrenching. All innocent life is equal in worth, israeli and palestinian. I urge the government of Israel to exercise maximum restraint. Hamas needs to stop using palestinians as human shields. They need to release all hostages immediately and unconditionally. We need the violence to stop urgently.
1: Now, the Associated Press reported that Israel conducted what it called a precise and targeted operation against Hamas uh, in a hospital in Gaza uh, at that facility early Wednesday morning local time. It gave no further details, but it said it was taking steps to avoid harm to civilians. Now, as reports of that development emerged, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu took aim at Mr. Trudeau on Twitter. He said, it is not Israel that is deliberately targeting civilians, but Hamas that beheaded, burned and massacred civilians in the worst horror perpetrated on Jews since the Holocaust. He goes on to say while Israel is doing everything to keep civilians out of the harm's way, Hamas is doing everything to keep them in harm's way. Israel provides civilians in Gaza humanitarian corridors and safe zones. Hamas prevents them from leaving at gunpoint. Well, joining me now to talk a little bit about uh, Mr. Trudeau's visit here and his comments and, and how the world has been responding to some of those comments is Warren Kinsella. He's a Toronto-based lawyer, author and consultant and former special assistant to Prime Minister Jean Chrétien. Warren, thank 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 you for joining us.
2: Thanks for having me, my friend.
1: Yeah, sorry for that long introduction, but I think I wanted to provide people a bit of context in regards to uh, what uh, transpired yesterday. What do you make of this response from Israel uh, directed at uh, Prime Minister Trudeau?
2: It's not great. Um, I was actually very surprised. I I think a lot of people were very surprised by what Trudeau said because just a, a few days before, in French, in the province of Quebec he had rightly characterized you know the shooting up of uh, uh, Jewish schools and firebombing of a synagogue and Jewish community center as terrorism and um, it, you know it, it was it's factually is is definitely that it meets every definition we've got in the criminal code and then a few days later it's like he he's kind of flip-flopped and sounded alone amongst you know leaders in the west uh highly critical of Israel and um Israel pushed back and it wasn't just you know Benjamin Netanyahu who did so the leader of the opposition in Israel you know who opposes the Netanyahu government um uh, also tweeted back at Trudeau and so people there are pretty mad at him, and um, I I just don't understand what the strategy was because I don't think he advanced any of his political interests or, or Canada's interests, frankly. Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, you don't see Mr. Netanyahu lecturing Rishi Sunak, uh, of the, the Prime Minister of the UK, or the leader of France or Germany, or uh, President Biden. Um, is this, in your mind, a uh, uh, this the way he was speaking, a, a leader who is courting a certain segment of the vote, could it could, it, could it be just as simple as that? He's not doing very well in the polls. You've got a significant um, uh, Muslim population that is very concerned of what's happening there. Uh, not too long ago, he also spoke of India's involvement in, in an assassination. Many said they should have held, handled that privately and that should not have been in the open. Many um, have also said that he was courting a certain vote as well in both cases, not doing well in the polls. How do you see this is this a question of, uh, of Trudeau trying to court a domestic uh, vote, uh, and and still getting himself in trouble globally?
2: Yeah, well, it's I really, really, really hope he's not doing that uh, because it would be pretty despicable, um, particularly in a situation where there's been um, you know people who have been killed as uh, we saw in Surrey, or uh, many people have been killed, as we saw on October 7th in Israel, mm-hmm. um, to, you know, subject all of those <clears throat> tragedies to a political calculation is pretty gross. Mm-hmm. But, you know, have politicians done it in the past? Uh, they certainly have. The thing I don't understand about the clip he played and, and you know, where he is very critical of Israel, you know, if you look at all the polling that's taken place since October 7th, About 85% of Canadians support uh, Israel and believes Israel has a right to defend itself and to take out Hamas. Uh, Like, that's a pretty sizable number. And my suspicion is, and I just just tweeted about this, actually, you know, with the firebombing of the synagogue and the shooting up of the Jewish schools and the attacks on Jews that are happening from Vancouver to Prince Edward Island, um, I think that number is going to grow. So you know, if Trudeau is doing all of this for crass political reasons, it, it, it's it's the worst strategy because it looks like he's aligning himself with uh, a lot of people who um, you know are considered a mob by a lot of Canadians. Mm-hmm.
1: Now you were, as I said, a special assistant to Prime Minister Jean Chrétien. It's a difficult moment. Uh, you have Canadians who may not be happy with what uh, Israel's policies. Uh, you also have uh, a sizable Jewish population. Who are absolutely concerned and rightfully concerned that they believe in Israel's right to exist? Uh, they are fighting a terrorist group in Hamas, and they do wish to have to be rid of Hamas as well. It's difficult, and it's it's, it's a tough time for an elected official to make sure all those issues are balanced, but at the same time providing support to, to your allies. What advice would you have given? What advice would you have given to Jean Chrétien, our prime minister today, in regards to how you handle a very polarizing sort of an issue like this to, to a Canadian audience?
2: You you have to confront it, and you have to confront it face on. You know, he is, for example, the only Western leader that I'm aware of who hasn't traveled yet to Israel. Hmm. Um, France's is leader, of the United States, Britain, everybody's gone. He has not. Um, I think that's noteworthy. The other thing that he's not done, and I would have advised him to do, and God knows I'm not <laughs> advising him, but, you know, to go on TV and give a presidential-style address and say, you know, point out those things that I just talked about a minute ago, mm-hmm. like shooting up a Jewish school where children are and, and a synagogue and, and attacks in a mosque and, and, you know, attacks on all of these communities. That's that's not who we are. And here are the steps I'm going to take as a government to ensure that these things don't happen anymore. I'm going to better fund you know, bias crime education and bias crime units for police forces across the country. I'm going to toughen up the sections of the criminal code. So I'm going to make it a crime to actively promote a terror group in Canada, a listed terror group. There's a number of things he can do, you know, beef up the provisions in the criminal code about intimidation, because there's a hell of a lot of intimidation taking place, particularly directed at the Jewish community. Those are the things he can do as a prime minister. And I think that People want to see that. They want to see some leadership other than some tweets where, you know, they look like they were, you know, uh, authored by artificial intelligence, you know, that where they don't really say anything at all. Mm -hmm. He needs to step up clearly to the microphone uh, as the prime minister and say, here's what's going on and here's how we need to stop it. Biden's already done that. You know, Biden did that two weeks ago. That's happened in France and Britain and everywhere else. Trudeau's not done it, and I don't understand that because that's the one thing that, whether you voted for him or not, that's something you expect your prime minister to do. Well,
1: and especially I was watching some video of uh, former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, and she spoke with such clarity in regards to what we're up against uh, in Hamas, such clarity. And you're absolutely right. I haven't heard any of that from Trudeau. I've, I've covered events in Israel. I've traveled to to Lebanon, Egypt, and Libya and i 've been to Hezbollah headquarters and, and 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 this is exactly what you sometimes need to do as a leader is to articulate what we 're up against and i don 't think our leader our prime minister, has done that in a very uh, sincere and thoughtful way and I think you're absolutely right in regards to speaking to Canadians and say this is what we 're up against and he hasn't done that and one of the things about clarity in my mind is knowing what Uh, Hamas perpetrated. I understand you uh, had access to some footage that you recently saw in regards to Hamas's attack uh, on Israeli citizens.
2: Yeah. So um, a week ago, I was invited by the Israeli consulate, along with some other journalists, uh, to see uh, 42 minutes of Hamas footage. And, you know, unlike the Nazis, the Hamas um, were proud of what they did. They were wearing GoPros. They had their their cell phones out. They were recording footage, and that footage was recovered uh, when some of the Hamas terrorists were killed by uh, the IDF, but also some of it they put on the Internet themselves. And just like it, it it was horrible. Uh, you know, I've been a cop reporter in Calgary and Ottawa, mm-hmm. and I've seen crime scenes. I've never seen anything like this. I saw 138 men, women, children and babies being murdered. And um, in all the stories that you've heard about, it's true. Uh, There were children, there were babies beheaded. There were women raped. There were people who were elderly, who were shot at a bus stop. Like terrible, terrible things took place on that day. And we only saw less than 10% of what took place um we were allowed to see it because the families had agreed that it was important that world leaders and journalists around the world saw it and you know when you think about them having to do that it's because Israel's always put to a higher standard in my opinion mm-hmm. you know like <laughs> when when Ukraine was invaded by Putin you know you know Zelensky didn't have to come up with video showing the terrible things that were happening in his country that Russia was doing to his countrymen, like we believed him. But in the case of Israel, and I believe it's because of anti-Semitism, they're put to this higher standard. And even when they, they come up with the proof, you have people like Sarah Jama, who's a member of the provincial parliament here in Ontario, saying she doesn't believe anything. She thinks yeah. the Zionist lobby came up with it. So it's pretty gross and it's pretty depressing. But you know, Israel understands that uh, it needs to keep world opinion on side, and I think mainly in the West uh, that has happened. And the and the other interesting thing is that a lot of the Arab countries who have been critical of Israel or who actually funded Hamas in the past are not in this fight. I think Hamas thought they would be by this point, and that hasn't happened, and that's good news.
1: Yeah, Warren, as always, uh, enjoy your comments and your thoughts. Really appreciate your time today. Thank you.
2: Thanks, my friend.
1: Welcome back to the show. Well, today, City Council unanimously approved the removal of parking minimum requirements for new developments in the West and in Broadway Plan area. It's effective January 1st. Historically, new developments have been required to provide a set number of parking spaces to prevent parking spillover onto adjacent streets. But uh, those parking minimum requirements have been taken away. Joining me now to talk a little bit about uh, the parking issue is Sarah Kirby Young, ABC Vancouver City Council. Sarah, thank you for joining us.
6: Hi, Jeff. thanks for having me
1: Now, in advance, you're talking to a suburbanite who uh, drives in every single day, so <laughs> i will put, I will give you my biases right up from the start. but uh, sort of why did you decide to move forward uh, with this particular issue in the West End and the Broadway plan area?
6: Well, I, I hear you, and uh, you know I also drive and I take transit uh, as well, and I think uh, you know a number of us have grown up where you wanted to go get your driver's license at, uh, sort of when you were sixteen on the first day mm-hmm. um, and I think we're seeing generational changes, but What we did today, I think, is is really a thoughtful, measured approach. It's in response to an option I brought forward two years ago called open option parking. Uh, And it's twofold because it supports delivering more housing. That's it has got an economic benefit, and it also is good for the environment. Um, We're doing this thoughtfully. Uh, We had already eliminated parking minimums in the main part of the downtown area, and now we're extending it into West End and Broadway plan that are really well served by transit, and we have really good on-street traffic management as well.
1: So when you say eliminating parking minimums, uh is there still a certain requirement for parking though?
6: Yeah, so this is what we're talking about is general purpose parking uh, so it doesn't affect things like visitor spots, accessibility um, servicing uh car share that kind of thing. so it still provides for those provisions um, but what it does do is not artificially require somebody to put in parking if they don't need it. So we've had projects come to council uh, rental projects, for example, where I've heard from proponents that they have built um, a project near a major transit station. Uh, They have put in the minimum parking and it has sat empty um, because their renters are simply not using it. Um, They have other projects that may be further away from major transit um, and they have had use of the parking. So this allows the market to decide that as opposed to artificially saying you have to potentially put in. Um, parking stalls that cost sixty to eighty thousand dollars. They add time to the cost of the project. We have to dig down. Uh, mm-hmm. Twelve to twenty percent of GHGs and embodied carbon emissions come from parking. And so, what we're saying is, uh, let's give people the opportunity to put in what is actually needed as opposed to requiring an artificial amount.
1: If let's just say, you know, 40%, I'm picking a number out of the year, 40% of uh, residents drive a vehicle in, in, in the city. And I'm just, and it's, I'm sure it's much higher than that, but let's just say 40%. We're adding another mm-hmm. million people to the region. 40% of another million is still more cars on the road, more people requiring parking. Um, Would you not need more parking still? If we're adding another million people, and those are the numbers from Metro Vancouver to the region by 2050, we're still going to have more people in vehicles overall, just because of the growth of numbers. Wouldn't we want to keep some of those parking spots for ease of just moving goods and services and people?
6: Well, again, I think this is really um, about putting in what the market will bear as opposed to requiring that. So I'll give you an example. There's some housing projects that can't move forward. I think the one on West Forest, somebody wanted to build one on a small site because... It's just physically the soils aren't good. Uh, it's a small, narrow, irregular lot. It you know doesn't make sense. It's not cost it's effective in order to drill down. And so we can bring some of those housing projects forward there. And, and again, as I said, demographics are changing. We're seeing a lot of uh, younger people now who are simply doing car share. Or they're not even getting their license. They're not electing them to drive. So. Nobody saying that driving is going away, um, but we're saying let's level set the amount of parking that we're actually putting in. And if you look at the downtown example, they said where it had been eliminated. Um, what we saw with developers is that the, there's one market rental project where it, uh, they would have been required to put in 83 spots. Think of the cost of that at sixty to $80,000, and they elected to put in zero. Um, and that building was fully subscribed. People wanted to live there. It was near major transit. That's yeah. not for everybody. Strata projects still have the ability if people have a car to put in some of that parking, but we just don't need to build as much.
1: And a cl- clarifier for the audience and myself, the new housing legislation that's come in from the province, that, that also takes away parking minimums, does it not?
6: Yeah, it, uh, it is going exactly in the same direction that Vancouver is going. And I asked that question of staff today, is how is the provincial legislation going to impact this report we're discussing today? Um, and I think we're very aligned with the province. In fact, I think um, Vancouver is going to be a bit ahead of the game in terms of where the province is starting. Um, so this is, this is a progressive, thoughtful approach. We're not suggesting blanketing the city in this. We're suggesting doing this progressively in different neighbourhoods as we densify and as we can also manage the on-street parking so that we make sure that we're not creating challenges and issues. Um, but we are getting some of those housing projects built. it also make housing faster um, because right now we've got process where we have developers spending time negotiating with staff how many parking spaces they are putting in um, instead of letting them determine that. Um, and that's just like community amenity, contribution, negotiations. Every additional process adds time to getting
1: that housing built. Do you worry between the city's um, desire to build more housing and the province's new housing legislation that both levels of government get ahead of the public or to the point where in the public kind of says, wait a minute here, this is going to change neighbourhoods, whether it be secondary suites or laneway homes everywhere in this province, whether it be parking minimums, whether it be greater uh, density in and around or 800 metres around a transit uh, spot, which is quite a large area. Um, Do you worry that you're getting ahead of the public where you may see established neighbourhoods and individuals just pushing back going, wait a minute here. I didn't buy into all of this. I don't buy into all of this. You're changing things way too fast. Do you worry about pushback from the public? Well, uh,
6: we haven't been accused recently of delivering housing too fast at City Hall. We're trying to actually speed up our processes. Um, But I actually think that the city and the province are behind public. Um, And I think that I hear resounding support when we're bringing these changes forward. People want the housing built. They want more diverse housing types. um, And they want it in neighborhoods across the city. So I actually think that we are catching up.
1: Sarah, as always, thank you for your time. Anytime. The government, as you know, introduced legislation not too long ago to limit short-term rentals in many cities in British Columbia in an effort to put thousands of units back into the long-term rental pool. The first part of that legislation will see a significant increase in fines for illegal operators. Uh, The penalty will jump from $1,000 per infraction per day to $3,000. In addition, regional districts, which currently do not have the authority to license or regulate businesses, will be allowed to license and regulate short-term rentals. Um, in May of 2024, the province will bring in a principal residence requirement for short-term rentals, meaning people can only rent out the home in which they live in for the majority of the year and renting out one secondary suite within a principal residence will also be allowed. Now, another change that will come into effect in May of 2024 is a requirement for municipal business license numbers to be displayed on rental listings on platforms like Airbnb and Verbo. Um, listings without this information uh, will uh, be removed and by the summer of 2024, 24 short-term rentals will be required to share share data with the province including information about about hosts so there can be a provincial registry and give us a better sense of how many of these uh, rental facilities are being u- used by STRs. Now, uh, a recent study, that, according to the government, showed that short-term rentals in BC were driving up prices on the long-term market by as much as 20%. Well, our next guest feels there's an importance uh, to the uh, short-term rental market, that they do pro- provide a service. There's lots of people who criticize short-term rentals, but we don't often hear from those who say, wait a minute here, let's go slow on this because uh, short-term rentals do provide a service as well. Uh, Jordan Dermijen is founder and CEO of Art and Properties, and he joins us now. Jordan, thank you for joining us today.
7: Jazz, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be on, and that's a great uh, summary of the legislation.
1: Yeah, I thank wanted to, to, to provide that summary in regards to what, what, what has already been announced in legislation and what's coming next year. So you give me your defense of, of uh, Airbnb. Uh, what, where Why do you, first of all, think what we're doing uh, doing here in British Columbia is heading in the wrong direction?
7: I think there can be more of a nuanced and evidence based approach uh, in regards to regulating short term rentals uh, and furn- furnished rentals, so be it. Um, I think that there's a critical role for, of short term rentals and especially 30 day rentals uh, that plays in a, a larger and more uh, dynamic housing ecosystem, I'd say, especially for larger cities in the province. Mm-hmm. Uh, the legislation is a one-size-fits-all solution to, to uh, addressing a diverse set of needs across people. And, of course, the majority of people are those that need long-term housing uh, housing in general, whether that's rental or, or owned. But there are thousands of people uh, needing furnished rentals for various reasons, uh, outside of travel being the obvious one. That's people displaced uh, for various reasons, whether that's you know a, a plumbing leak or a flood that's happened, the fire situation, medical visits, whether you're someone from the uh, interior and you need more uh, robust hospital for a surgery or some sort of you know treatment mm-hmm. uh, the list goes on, right? and what homes do is they provide a uh, they, they they provide an accommodation that simply just isn't out there for any alternative uh you're You're in a home, and I think that speaks for itself. Uh, you could have a yard uh, if you're in a if you're in a condo or an apartment. You have a kit. You have a kitchen, and these are things that are preferred by consumers and year over year been preferred by consumers uh, an increasing amount. And uh, now, just because of this legislation that looks to uh, target the affordability crisis, uh, there's a net negative for those that are, are in need of homes, and let alone you know trying to bring uh, people who are visiting the city. Uh, could possibly embrace the culture here, bring their culture here, and and uh, you know help Vancouver prosper.
1: Uh, I'm curious. Uh, uh, your company, I understand, was created in 2019, and so it it rents out uh, short term rentals uh, via Airbnb and other platforms.
7: Yeah, yeah. That's we we use the platforms to to market and, and attract customers. Yes.
1: And any? Would you be able to share how many properties you rent out or how many? Pr- Potential properties you have that you can potentially rent out for short-term rentals.
7: Yeah, well, it's, we should we should be sure to uh, distinguish between a short-term rental and what isn't. So, uh, according to this new legislation now, anything less than ninety days is considered a short-term rental. Where previously, and at least in the stream lot or the mainstream, uh, it used to be anything less than thirty days. So. Uh, we, we have about 60 short-term rentals here under my portfolio and then about 100 to 110 30-day minimums. The 30-day minimum furnished rentals, they cater to uh, you know, business travelers, travelers, digital nomads, people here needing 30-day accommodations uh, with furniture. So you know, people that are here on a 30-day basis, they're likely not going to rent a home for a year, right? Mm-hmm. Let alone furnish it for, what, for the need of 30 days, maybe two months. Um, whereas the short-term rentals, yeah, that's more in line with travel, but it's also there for, for, uh, necessity purposes
1: as well. Uh, I'm curious here, in a very tight housing market, and you are fully aware that we need to be building more housing, and and, and this is a challenge, that even 60 units, 100 units, controlled by one company that rents them out for short-term rentals can have an impact, and and the government has said, this is driving up some of those costs, and they could put literally thousands of these rental units that are probably on short-term rental as long-term rentals, and that could have an impact on our market. What do you say to that argument that if we allow this to continue the way it's going, it's going to have an impact, an even bigger impact that it's already having, on providing housing for local people?
7: Well, you know, I'd encourage everyone to just look at the statistics that are provided. Uh, Even the province came out and said how many short-term rentals there are in the the province, or at least an approximation, and that was around 26,000. However, there's 2 million units of, of or dwelling units across the province That makes up about 1.2% of BC's total homes. And then you have to take into consideration the fact that over 50% of these short-term rentals that are offered on the market in the province and in Vancouver, there's a similarity between the two, are only available for 90 days of the year. And that's usually the summer, the most advantageous time to put up your property, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Units that are available for longer than nine months of the year, and I want this to be, you know, clearly stated. So, units that are offered likely by investors that are on the on the market for more than nine months of the year only make up about fifteen to twenty percent of the market. And I think there, part of that is uh, it's not it's not always profitable,
3: mm-hmm. uh,
7: and it's it's not and it's def- certainly not profitable every month of the year. And I, I think I could speak to that as someone who is my job to, you know, bridge the gap between customers and clients, clients being homeowners, customers being guests. Uh, I see it firsthand. It's, it doesn't always work. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, 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 the stats speak for themselves. And, you know, to get back to your question, it's not a significant or a uh, substantial amount of housing that's going to be added. It's, it's 6,000 units across the board in Vancouver, 26,000 units. Uh, I think that there's definitely value in regulations, for sure, but there could be a more balanced and and evidence-based approach that can help BC prosper.
1: Uh, I'm curious, the housing crisis didn't come because of the short-term rental market. I mean, we've walked away, and the federal government's walked away from affordable housing sometime in the 1980s. Um, it is a global phenomenon. We were just covering this issue on Monday with uh, Professor David Lay on gateway cities and the challenges that they've had with foreign investment uh, with uh, Hong Kong, uh, Sydney, London, um, Vancouver, those uh, cities. Uh, but what it did point to, broadly speaking, is we have turned it, housing into a commodity because interest rates from a lot of our savings accounts post-financial crisis just haven't been very good. So people start investing in housing. You can buy it, you can sell it, you can flip it. And we've had a whole culture based on that. We've gotten away from where housing is for local people for living in. It shouldn't be going up 20% a year every year where people are flipping and it keeps an entire generation or five uh, from being unable to afford a home. Now Airbnb has come in. Somewhere along the way, provided a service in regards to linking homeowners and those who wish to rent. But ultimately, as the premier has said, housing has to be for local people. If we have a lack of short shortage of housing or rentals for a short term, we should be building more hotel rooms, period, full stop. What do you say to that argument? At the end of the day we've got it all wrong housing shouldn't be commodified housing should be for local people and let's worry about building more short-term rentals i.e hotels or have special designated short-term especially designated short-term rentals but get away from commodifying housing and this is the reason the problem one of the reasons we're in this mess now so like i said i don't blame the short-term rental industry but you're part of the problem the premier has said not the complete problem what do you say to that argument
7: well, you know, Vancouver is a very desirable place to live and and to own real estate, and the, there, there's there's a lot of people that that want, that want to live here that mm-hmm. own property here, and I think that just, for, for, can you can you rephrase the, the end of that question well, again? I, I'm just I, the there's, reason there's I was asking is there.
1: the philosophy at its core from the from the government is that housing should be for local people and whether it's airbnb or whether it's just or skyrack foreign investors whatever it may be we have commodified housing where Harvard, housing is viewed as an investment that could be flipped and and exchanged as quick as much as possible to make a quick buck uh, and what Mr. Eby and his government are saying is that we've got to get back to a much different philosophy, which is housing should be for local people. It's where we live. We don't uh, want huge, uh, a huge amount of flipping and all that type of thing. We don't want to commodify it and that's what we've done and airbnb is part of that that if we're going to provide short-term rental let's let's set up buildings that are specifically zoned as short-term rentals but not everything should be short-term rental not every neighborhood and if we do need more housing let's make sure we build more hotels for that short-term rental but not allow airbnb to grow to the point it is taking away legitimate long-term rentals from people
7: yeah well well, i i'd I'd agree to that um you know i i really believe that there's there should be a balance but I also think there's an argument for for free markets uh, and and you know autonomy with 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 the property that you own. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I I think that it's and I, I'm not the person who you know is is the expert in this situation and you know hopefully with my career I'm 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 25 years old and I and I hope to be be able to to help with the housing crisis. This whole legislation has, has piqued my interest, but. You know, free market or non-market housing is something that only makes up five percent of of the available stock here in in British Columbia. And you, you look to Europe, and it's about forty to fifty percent. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have under underused, uh, just sized lots. You know, even today, the Shaughnessy uh, got got turned down by the city. And, and mm-hmm. I'm not the person to say that I, you know, that I have the answers to everything. I most definitely don't. But um, the the issue that I have with the the one issue I have with the legislation is just 30 day rentals help people that are in compromised positions and also help business here and innovation and culture with our city helps people come to our city Mm -hmm. and there will never, there's not enough land, just the nature of Vancouver's geography. You got an ocean to the left. You can, you can only urban sprawl to the right. And then you have mountains to the North. You have to pick and choose what you do. And, uh, this, it's seemingly that the short-term rental industry is low-hanging fruit, a, a scapegoat to to uh, to show that, you know, we're adding units to the market when really, you know, across Vancouver, it's 6,000 units and across the province, it's 26,000 units if all the units were to go back to the market. And, you know, it's it's, a, it's not a substantial number.
1: Yeah. Jordan, Especially thank when you. When you
7: take into consideration, you know, that only... Uh, Half of them are only available for three months of the year.
1: Yeah. Jordan, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it.
7: My pleasure. Thank Uh you
1: for having me. The Dahan Prize was created to call greater attention to the wealth of literary works produced in Punjabi around the world. The prize encourages new writings by awarding $25,000 annually to one uh, best book of fiction published in either the two Punjabi scripts, Gurmukhi and Shamuki. Two finalist prizes of $10,000 Canadian are also awarded with the provision that both scripts are represented among the three winners. The Dahan Prize was first awarded in 2014, and since 2018, the annual award purse is $45,000 uh, Canadian per year. Now, when I say Punjabi, which is a, a you know well-spoken language here in Metro Vancouver, but there's probably about 120 million people around the world that speak Punjabi between India and Pakistan and, and the broader uh, South Asian diaspora, uh, and that's about the 11th largest, 11th most spoken language in the world. Joining me to talk a little bit about the Dahan Prize for Punjabi Literature is Barj Dahan. He's co-founder and director of the Canada India Education Society. Barge, thank you for joining us.
5: Thank you for having me here.
1: So, so uh, you uh, and the organization that you worked with started this prize. So what convinced you that there was a need for a, 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 a literature prize for Punjabi?
5: One was just growing up here, going to high school. European languages were offered, but not any Indian languages. Mm-hmm. And then I personally, along with my wife, have an interest in uh, arts and literature. I witnessed the rise of the Giller Prize. It is mm-hmm. the uh, premier a cultural event in Canada, and I was also inspired by that. And I knew that Punjabi has a long thousand-year history of literature. There are some great works, but very, very few people uh, in the Western world know about that. So we wanted to, to shine light on that rich history, as well as uh, bring uh, attention to younger writers who are who are living all over the world and producing new works of Punjabi fiction.
1: So it's not just uh, Canadians of South Asian heritage or Punjabis of, of uh, you know of, of, from living here, and the, and the context doesn't have to be within Canada. It's just a broad global literature prize.
5: It's a global prize. Anyone writing in Punjabi. It has to be original work of fiction, short stories, and novels, mm-hmm. and those works are eligible. Do you think the community
1: itself here, locally and across Canada, celebrates its own uh, cultural? History and rich history when it comes to writing,
5: not writing so much. We see a great deal of energy being poured every year into Pangada <laughs> and dances and all of that. Yeah, but uh, literature, not so much. I would also even say that even the broad arts area uh, doesn't get the attention that it should. Though again, the tradition is uh, very long, very rich, very diverse, and some amazing works. Uh, have been produced over the centuries.
1: So, when you say Dahan uh, Prize for Punjabi literature, um, that would be uh, writers that would be of the Sikh faith, could be of the Muslim faith, Christian faith. I mean, there's a tremendous diversity there.
5: Anybody that can write. This is uh, this is a purely literary prize. Mm. The winning book is the best book produced that year, as is determined by a panel of jurors. Uh, what types of for past
1: winners what kind of stories uh, have won i'm curious
5: well there are there are themes are in terms of what's happening in the indian and the punjabi uh, pakistani and punjabi punjab all the dramatic changes that are taking place mm-hmm. also the diaspora experience one of our winners is from toronto he won in 2016 And his title story is called Kalevarke, which literally means Dark Pages. Mm -hmm. It's the first story in Punjabi fiction about the indigenous experience here in Canada. Mm -hmm. And so the themes are diverse, they're modern, they're relevant. And there is considerable new work being produced around gender issues, Mm -hmm. uh, the role of women in society. Uh, the lower castes in India and Pakistan
1: mm-hmm. you know when you were mentioning earlier a tremendous amount of energy put into into celebrating dance, and you know when people think of of the broader South Asian diaspora, they think movies and Bollywood and those types of things. <clears throat> Why do you think there hasn't been uh, a greater focus on literature
5: per se uh, what i've observed in the Canadian scene is when I look at many families from South Asian communities, mm-hmm. the families stress that their children should go to universities and become doctors and engineers and lawyers and accountants.
1: That's not going to stop. Either. That's <laughs> not going to
5: stop. Uh, so so I think that plays a role in terms of the focus, mm-hmm. focus of material success, worldly success. And there's nothing wrong with that.
1: Um, basically, I mean, when you come from an immigrant experience, it's based building an economic base for you and your family more than anything, right?
5: Well, my my in-laws, they were displaced people from what is today Ukraine. Mm -hmm. And my wife, their daughter, had an interest in uh, writing. And her mom one time said to her, it is breadless art. (laughs)
1: I once told my parents who wanted to be a journalist to look on their face. (laughs) (laughs) You're going to make a living off words? Yes, I am. Um, In regards to uh, the award itself, uh, 2014 was when it was first awarded. Um, Do you see expanding this uh, award in some capacity in regards to... uh, you know, you're inviting people from all over the world. Uh, do you see growth in this in some capacity? Could there be themes that you could be adding to, perhaps future awards, or uh, or perhaps uh, inviting younger writers and things of that sort?
5: Uh, well, quite a few younger emerging writers mm-hmm. have been finalists or have won the prize, mm-hmm. and this is one of the new things that we're doing with this in the Punjabi literary scene. Then our system, how we adjudicate uh, this award is open, it's transparent, it's accountable. Mm-hmm. We are thinking of doing some new things going forward. One is we're very supportive of the University of British Columbia and Simon Fraser University with their South Asian studies and particularly the Punjabi language programs. Mm-hmm. With the award, we're hoping to increase the, the dollar value in the years to come, as well as pers- perhaps establishing fellowships for students that are pursuing masters in Punjabi studies or Punjabi language studies in Canada at the University of British Columbia, for example, and universities in India and Pakistan, possibly UK. Do you think,
1: uh, do you see a great Punjabi
5: novel written by a Canadian of Punjabi heritage one day? It's happening. Uh, It's happening. What's happening is that we are now beginning to see uh, Punjabi uh, folk that are born and raised here, mm-hmm. and they are choosing to go and study Punjabi language and literature. In fact, a new incoming professor, I won't name them until mm-hmm. it's formally announced, is coming to UBC, is born and raised here. They have a PhD. There are a number of other ones. Uh, Kirat Kaur is an emerging Canadian artist, a Punjabi Sikh background, born and raised here. Mm-hmm. She's an illustrator, architect, writer. She's doing that. So we see a lot of new talent being developed and some rising stars. I think some of our young people who may decide to write in Punjabi, we're hoping that they will be writing in English. Someday maybe they'll be winners of the Giller. Our, Our hope ultimately someday is that a Punjabi writer will receive the Nobel Prize one day. In literature. In literature. Yeah.
1: Well, um, it's fabulous work uh, that you have started uh, in 2014, and it continues to grow. And uh, the, the, the prize itself, you'll be giving that out tomorrow?
5: Tomorrow, we're giving the prize, and we have authors from Pakistan, India, United States. It's uh, sold full house tomorrow. Very exciting. And we think that one of our previous works may very well be turned into a movie. Wow. Yeah. Good for you. I guess you weren't thinking that when you started in no, 2014. No, we weren't. We've okay. learned a great deal. <laughs> <laughs> Barge, thank you. Jazz, thank you so much for having me here.
1: Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.